Welcome to Day of Destiny with Dr. Michelle Corral, author, prophetic teacher, and pastor of Breath of the Spirit Prophetic Word Center. Dr. Corral can be seen weekly, nationwide, and around the world on her weekly telecasts that air on God TV, Impact, and Word Network. Now, let's join Dr. Corral by experiencing Day of Destiny, designed with your highest destiny in mind. Now, here is Dr. Corral. And we are going to open our Bible to the book of Genesis, the 35th chapter. And when you have it, say amen. Hallelujah. Genesis chapter 35, and we are going to look at verses 1 and 2. And we have been speaking to you about the attributes of revival. And I want to go over those attributes of revival again. How many of you are longing to come into that supernatural experience with God as never before? And you know something is happening. How many of you have been experiencing it since Pentecost? You've been experiencing that impartation of God's grace and that impartation of the Spirit of God. I'm going to share the attributes of revival with you very quickly. There are seven attributes of revival that we have been sharing with you about since the time of preparation for Pentecost. I want us to get it so in our spirit. I want us to memorize it. I want us to, to know that there is a systematic sequence that the Spirit of God does when he moves in our life, and especially as we prepare for the revival that God is bringing upon us. Number one, that the first attribute of revival that we've been teaching you about is the attribute of absence. And I want you to say that with me, the attribute of absence. And that attribute of absence, beloved saints, produces agony. We saw this. You say attribute of absence. What does that mean? Do you, does that mean you don't so show up to a service? Dr. Corral, what are you talking about? The attribute of absence is the sense of longing, the sense of absence. This is what God did before the first revival happened. The first revival that we see in the New Testament that happened besides when Jesus went from village to village and place to place. The Bible tells us in the book of Acts, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all in one accord and in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven like as of a mighty rushing wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. Hallelujah. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire. And it sat upon each of them. And they all spoke, hallelujah, with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now we shared with you with the Azusa Revival which is so important for us to note because we're using the Azusa revival as one of the models of revival that we know God is bringing to the house. We are believing God, hallelujah, but we're looking at all the revivals. Studying revival history is so important so we know how to prepare ourselves, so we know how to position ourselves. We want to know what was the pattern of revival every time God moved in mighty revivals in the earth. Are you with me if you are Say amen. 
And we see that in the Azusa revival, that when the Spirit of God came and baptized individuals in the Holy Ghost, and it didn't happen through one person laying hands, uh, one of the supernatural secrets of Azusa was that Azusa was all Christians. There were no denominations. There were Christians from all believers, and William Seymour, Bishop Seymour, was very strong about, um, about no division. He was so strong about it. And he was very strong about, about integration, cultural integration. He did not allow any division. He did not uh, allow any divisions, even with the mouth. No one was ever allowed to speak against anyone else. And the greatest uh, manifestation of God's power in that place was love. Every person that ever met Bishop Seymour said there were many, many evangelists. And as you know, the Azusa revival started the revival, not just for the next generation. The Azusa revival literally started Pentecost in the United States. There were no Pentecostals until Azusa revival. It started Pentecostals and later brought charismatic. I want you to understand it began the century of the Holy Spirit, not a generation of the Holy Spirit. We are talking the century of the Holy Spirit. And basically today, there are over 600 million that have been as a result of in some way, whether that it's direct or indirect, have been connected with Azusa. So this is why Azusa is so important. I hope somebody understands what I'm talking about. Because when we're talking about revival and we are talking about the, man, the move of God, we have to understand, dear people, that we need to, um, we need to actually study it. And so when the Spirit of God moved in Azusa, when those received the baptism in the Spirit, oftentimes it would be from someone who was preaching. And it wasn't Bishop Seymour all the time. Whoever was under the anointing would come up and preach. And they would not preach long, but they would preach. And um, when the person was in the flesh, Bishop Seymour would tell them very quietly and lovingly. And the people in the audience oftentimes would groan and they would let the person know that they're not receiving. But, but um, when the preaching would take place, the Holy Ghost would automatically fall and people would begin to start speaking in tongues. And the phenomena that I have noticed as we have been documenting so many of the miracles and following and looking at the church historian and the church, the church records, especially from Dr. Vincent Sinan and um, Dr. Ralph Wilkerson, who also did a tremendous work on documenting Azusa and so many others um, that, that we see that those who spoke in tongues at the Azusa revival were actually speaking languages on earth, that they were not the celestial languages that we receive when we receive our prayer language. These languages actually were used when people were praising God, raising their hands, praising God, individuals in the audience, because Los Angeles was a melting pot of people from all over the world. They would come in and jack 
Japanese would hear people praising God in Japanese, and oftentimes God would send somebody to sit near someone that was speaking a language of their ethnicity, and God would be, they would be praising God, and that person next to them would be saying their name, saying where they were from, and it would be a message from God to the person that knew that language saying to repent from their sins and to give their lives to Christ. I hope you understand what I'm talking about. We are talking about the greatest miracles and we're talking about revival. When we talk about the Welsh revival, we are talking about people being under the power for hours and hours. We are talking about weeping in the presence of God and heaven coming down to earth and 250,000 people come Coming to Christ in just a year and a half with no messages, with no phones, with no, with no, no um, cells, with no modern technology. It was a revival. It was a move of God. So when we speak of a revival, I'm not just talking about coming into a meeting and getting blessed. I'm not just talking about a few people falling out under the power. I am talking about a work of God that is going to shake the people of God. God. Are you with me, saints? If you are, say amen. Somebody ought to give God praise and give God glory in this house. All right. So we have spoken to you about seven attributes of revival. The first attribute of revival, as we have shared with you from Acts chapter 1, verses 10 through 13, is the absence that produces agony. Agony is something that the Holy Ghost has to give. If there is no agony, there will be no revival. You say, what kind of agony? I mean agonizing prayer. I mean those that are calling out to God, those that have received the burden of heaven, as a matter of fact, there are actually reports on video of Frank Bartleman's son. Frank Bartleman was the intercessor from Azusa, and his son actually tells the um, many of the experiences that he saw as a child, as his father, Frank Bartleman, who was the intercessor that would be a weeping intercessor long before Azusa started. God began to burden him. And he talks about heaven coming down and burdening souls and people picking up the burden of heaven. You see, you have to pick up the burden of heaven. Heaven is weeping. Heaven is crying. God is getting ready to pour out a revival because why? After the revival, there will be judgments in the earth. After the revival, this earth is going to go through some serious shaking. I hope you understand what I'm talking about. If you notice when revivals happen, it's always before a great thing happens in the earth. I hope somebody understands what I'm talking about. That's why we can't miss this revival because the Holy Spirit is pleading with us to be his intercessors, to pray this revival in. And I don't know about you, but I want to pray this revival in and I want nothing to stop the move of God. Are you hearing this? 
It's not just about having a good time. It's about picking up the burden of heaven. And God is bringing, hallelujah, this sense of absence that produces agony. That's what they did in the upper room. They were missing Jesus for 10 days. They had a sense of absence, but it produced the agonizing prayer that brought the power of the Holy Ghost down. Do you understand what I'm talking about? And then we see the desperate need that must precede revival. This is why when, um, when Frank Bartleman and some other brethren as well, they, they, they wanted to know what, what was the secret of the Welsh revival. The Welsh revival was a very short revival. God worked on, chose Evan Roberts long before the revival began. He was so chosen of God. He was chosen at a young age, 12 years old. When he was 13, he had to quit school and work in the coal mines. The coal mines in Wales was very difficult place. Many, most of the Welsh in the villages worked in the coal mines and especially children, they didn't have labor laws. Children would go way down into the coals and they would call them the coal face. The ones who went way, way, way down into the mines and did very, very rigorous work. And uh, Evan Robert was one of them, one of those young people that had to quit school to help support the family. But every night after those coal, working in the coal mine, he would come home and he would be sure he didn't miss every single night being in church. Every single night where there was something happening in one of the, one of the, now remember, we're talking the Anglican church. We're not even talking about Pentecostals. There was no such thing as Pentecostals yet. Pentecostals didn't happen until Azusa. So we're not talking about Pentecostals yet. Okay, the term Pentecostal came from Azusa. I hope you understand what I'm talking about. So these were Anglican churches that were starting to experience the move of God. And they had chapels all over, little chapels that they would have in the 1900s, all throughout Wales. And he would know, well, what if I miss God showing up at a prayer meeting tonight? Or what if I miss after work tonight? And the Holy Spirit is, is telling me to be somewhere. So he never missed. And if you read some of the simple, simple material, but just so simple that he would want to go and maybe go with friends or do something after the coal mines, he would ever Every single night, be sure that he was in one of the chapels praying and in the chapels together because they had prayer meetings. Be at a prayer meeting or be where there was something happening every single night of the week. And so um, when the Welsh revival broke out when he was 26, just supernaturally, for several months before this Welsh revival broke out, Evan Roberts was taken up to heaven every single night. Every single night at approximately, he gives the testimony about one o'clock in the morning till nine. He would be taken up into the heavenly, into a great expanse. And he was in, he would hear things and see things that were unlawful for him to speak. And this is right before the revival actually began. So that when you see the Welsh revival and you see the move of God, that instantly within time, 250,000 people in a year and a half come to Christ. And that is the documented ones. That is not the non-documented ones. 
And so um, they said, what's, what's the secret of the Welsh revival? Many people before Azusa began sent um, individuals to the Welsh revival. And Evan Roberts wrote back and said and, and instructed many, have a prayer meeting for 15 weeks every single night. See, we can't even have a prayer meeting twice a week. And it's got to be in our conditions and in our time. You see, agonizing prayer, calling down the power of God, coming and praying. We're so used to if we don't get something out of it that we just, we just want to leave or we don't get something out of it. We're not used to calling down the power of God and not here to seek something for ourselves, but here to seek God because we need God. We need a move of God. We need to touch heaven. We need revival. Do you understand what I'm talking about? If you do, say amen. So we see that second attribute of revival, which is the attribute following systematically in the sequence of Acts chapter 1. We saw Acts chapter 1, verses 10 through 13, and then we saw the second supernatural attribute of revival, which is the desperate need that must precede revival. We saw that in Acts chapter 1, 14, when they continued and prayed until the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then we see the third attribute of revival, which is the attribute of the destiny of every disciple to move into the miraculous. In the book of Acts, we see that the miraculous was not just with the apostles. We see beginning with Stephen, then after Stephen came, hallelujah, Philip, and after Philip came Ananias. We need to see in the prophets were Agabus and so many others that we see that the anointing and the rest of the book of Acts is no longer on the 12, but it moves out of the 12 into the the church are you with me being used of God and great signs wonders and miracles are you with me if you are say amen and we saw the fifth attribute, fourth attribute of revival. And the fourth attribute of revival is that we need to become aware of the enemies of the revival. And there are two enemies of the revival that we have spoken about. One, to be scandalized by the supernatural. There are people who want to put a box on the Holy Ghost. There are people that want to put limits on God. People that say you can't do it this way. People that say it's got to be our time our format, what we like, and with our friends and the people we think God should use. But God is about to do a movement. Hallelujah. And he does not want us to be scandalized by the supernatural because there are going to be signs, wonders, and miracles. And God is going to use the ones that you would never expect. I hope somebody's hearing this. This is why Azusa was, uh, everyone was so used of God. And this is why God used the most unlikely people. If you follow revival history, you will see persons that led revivals were the most humble of all the people. The ones that the Holy Ghost could find that were the humblest of all. The ones the Holy Ghost could find that had no earthly qualification for what they were doing. Because if you followed it with me, you saw that there are actually seven attributes that are the prerequisites of power that the Spirit of God is looking for, for individuals that he's going to use in the revival. Say this with me, seven attributes 
Not only the attributes of revival, but seven attributes that are the prerequisites of power. Say it with me, prerequisites of power. What are they? Are they the skilled? Are they the wise? Are they the people that come from such a great background? The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, go with me for a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, we see seven prerequisites of power that are necessary for revival. And you will see that every one, whether it's Evan Roberts or whether it is, beloved saints, Bishop Seymour, or whether it's Catherine Coleman, or whether it's an Amy Simple McPherson, or whoever it is that God's going to use, you're going to see God chose the most unqualified individual. God chose the one that you would never expect. God chose the meekest one that he could find the humblest of the humble. I want you to understand that no flesh could glory in his presence because once revival hits, the signs, wonders, miracles, and power of God, heaven will come down to earth and no man can touch it. No man will be able to touch the glory. No man will be able to say, you see, what they said of, of Azusa was that Azusa was the place of the miraculous manifestations without a man. That means that Bishop Seymour completely stepped out of the way and let God move. We got a long way to go because we're so used to getting pumped up by man. If we don't have a man or a woman or somebody that's preaching, that is able or something or some kind of outward, outward manifestation that we call anointing that's often entertainment, I hope somebody understands what I'm talking about. That is not any more anointing than the man in the moon. And we're so used to, we're so accustomed to letting the preacher do all the work. And we've got our little format. We've got our little form. One of the men was interviewed from Azusa. Dr. Ralph Wilkerson interviewed him. He was an older man. He was seven years old when the Azusa revival started. His father was a Baptist, was a Baptist deacon. And he was down the street from the Azusa revival. But you could feel the glory from the place where God anointed Azusa all to all the churches around. And his father, uh, after their church service was over, would run to Azusa. And that elderly man, he was something in his 90s. He surely didn't look like it. He was being interviewed by Dr. Wilkerson. And he said, what I miss the most, he said, you go to church, you have your songs, you have your preaching, it's the same. You have your church, you go to church, you have your songs, you have your preaching, you have a little bit of ministry, and you go home. It's a form. We need to break out of the form. Hello, somebody. I said we need to break out of the form. And the only way we're going to break out of the form is when we surrender ourselves and say, bend us, oh God. Bend us. Break us. We want revival. We don't care what kind of a price we've got to pay for revival. Are you with me? 
Hallelujah. And so, beloved saints, these attributes, these prerequisites of power. For you see your calling, brethren, how not many wise after the flesh, we're keeping it up, how not many wise after the flesh, not many noble, hallelujah, are called. Let's go back up. We didn't get finish it. Let, for you see your calling, brethren, how not many wise after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Verse 27, but God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And God has chosen. I said God has chosen. Say it with me. God has chosen the weak things of this world to confound the things that are mighty. Do you understand? And the base things of this world, verse 28, yea, the things that are despised, the things that are despicable. I want you to understand that God, one of the attributes of revival is that God chooses the despicable for destiny. God is looking for something despicable that he can be glorified through. The things which are not to, to bring to naught the things that are. I want to go over these really quickly. I want to go over them. Look at verse 26. Verse 26 says, you see you're calling brethren how not many wise. This is the word sophos in Greek. You get the word sophia. It's sophos. Sophos means without skill, without expertise, God is looking for somebody. The first prerequisite for power is that God is looking for somebody without skill or expertise that he can use in the revival. Number two, look at it. Not many sophos after the flesh, not many mighty. mighty. This word mighty in the Greek language is the word dynamite where we get the word dunamis. It's dynamite. Dynamite means strength, but this is saying not many mighty. So this word dynamite means without strength, without power, not many that have strength to do it. Notice the next one. The next prerequisite of power, we've done two. Look at the third one. Not many noble. This word noble in the Greek language is the word eugenies, which means parentage or pedigree. Not many that are of a noble birth, that have a noble background, that come from a noble family. Are you with me? Not many. God needs somebody with no background. God needs somebody that comes from obscurity. God needs somebody that was born on the wrong side of the tracks. I hope you're hearing what I'm saying. God needs somebody like, uh, like uh, an Evan Robert. God needs somebody like a William Joseph Seymour who is not many noble. His parents were slaves. Hello, somebody. Do you understand what I'm talking about? Not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of this world 
to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak. Here's the fourth one, weak. Asthenes in Greek. Asthenes means very, 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 very weak. No strength at all. Asthenes, this is the same word that you use almost for like sickly, somebody who's almost anemic. God has chosen the weak things of this world to confound the things that are mighty. Now watch this. And God has chosen the base things of this world. The very lowly things of this world. And the things that are despised. The things that are despicable. This word despised in the Greek language is a word that means contemptible. Very contemptible. The very contemptible, this is number, number seven. God has chosen the contemptible things God has chosen and the things which are not, hallelujah, to bring to naught the things that are so that no flesh could glory in his presence. As I shared last night, I'll share it tonight. It's not in my notes, but I'm going to share it anyway. I oftentimes ask the Lord, why this apostolic faith mission? Why was the thing so beat up? You know, why was it this despicable, this despicable looking building? It was dilapidated. It's not because it was the 1900s. There were many beautiful buildings in the 1900s. Bonnie Bray, that house wasn't in a despicable neighborhood. Even today, a hundred and something years later, still the Bonnie Bray house still stands. When, when the power of God fell in on the Bonnie Bray house before they went to the Azusa mission, it was, it was a, it was a better neighborhood. It wasn't a first class by any means, but it was a good neighborhood. Wasn't so bad, but the mission this place was despicable. Why? It was purchased in 1888. First, the first, the building, I, I did some research on the building because I, I was confounded. I said, God, wait a minute. Not only, we, we know why you chose William Joseph Seymour, his humility. And you, we know why you chose him. He, you needed somebody that was going to obey the Holy Ghost on everything the Holy Ghost said. He has one of the most powerful doctrines of pneumatology. His doctrine of pneumatology is, it's profound. And there is a fallacy that says that he was illiterate. He was not. He wrote, he wrote um, incredible doctrines on the Holy Spirit that are recorded in the Apostolic Faith newsletter. It's called Apostolic Faith because it wasn't Pentecostal yet. And I asked the Lord. He said, we, we know this background about William Joseph, but what about this place? This place is so despicable, it has to have something behind it. It was, you, it was first in 1888, St. Stephen's African Methodist Episcopal Church 1888, and then it was sold, and then it was, uh, before it was owned by Azusa, it was, it was a warehouse. Then after it was a warehouse, it became a stable. When Brother Seymour 
rented it, and then later bought it. It was downstairs was the, where the assembly was, but they didn't have chairs. They had, they had uh, planks. They had uh, pieces of plywood on top of two supporting little tiny pillars. And the pulpit of Bishop Seymour were freight boxes that he would put his head in, standing up tall, that he would put his head in and pray about five hours of service with his head in the box. Upstairs was the tarrying room. And later, some of the staff lived upstairs. Bishop ended up living upstairs, and several other staff members lived upstairs. And so I, 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 I was amazed. I said, God, wait a minute. There's got to be some kind of secret here. How can it be that, you know, the first few nights when they went to Azusa, the place was so packed they didn't have fire marshal laws like they have. They put 800 people. I believe the whole building itself was only 2,000 square feet. And then outside of the building, there were thousands of people that began to congregate. And the place was had heavenly fire fall from heaven. And, of course, the fire would come off the roof and the fire would come down from heaven. They would call the fire engines several times, but the fire engines could find no fire because it was fire from heaven that fell on Azusa. They said, my God, why'd you choose this building? Why was this the building? And I began to look at the background, and I said, okay, AME Church. Okay, what's, what's, what's behind this? All right, then I find out, wait a minute, hold it. There's a little lady that's behind the whole thing. By the time Azusa started, she was already in heaven. Do you know who she was? Her name was Biddy. Biddy. Biddy Mason. I looked her up. Biddy Mason, she's the one who bought the Azusa building. Biddy Mason? Who is she? There's something behind Biddy Mason and why God chose her property. The original owner of the Azusa Mission. I found out. When I first found out, I found out last Friday. I, could, I couldn't function. I really, truly, I'm telling you before God, I couldn't function. I forced myself to have conversations with people. I forced myself. I, my son, you know, he tapes. And he said, Mom, what's wrong? What's wrong? And I, I, I couldn't tell him. I was just undone. I forced myself to do whatever I had to do. And by the time the night came, I barely got out the message. Because something hit me when I found out who Biddy was. She was from Georgia. And she was a slave. She was, she had owners that were Mormons. And it's public knowledge, so we don't want to say anything against any people because we all are guilty. And they went from Georgia 
all the way to Utah on a wagon train. And Biddy was there, one of their slaves. She was walked the whole way and partially dragged. And then by the time they got to Utah, they decided to go to California. Biddy was never allowed to go in the wagon train. Biddy had to walk and be dragged from Georgia to Utah all the way to California. And what happened is when Biddy got to California, there were some brethren there because California was free, a free state by then. And even though there were tremendous laws, still segregation laws, it was nothing like the South or nothing like other parts. And so some precious brethren saw what was happening to Biddy. And so they told the sheriff. And they said, these people have this woman under and they're treating her like this. And this is a place where we're a free state. So they got a writ of habeas corpus. And normally when the judges would get cases like this, they didn't do much. But this time, because, because Biddy was a woman of God. So they took it to court and immediately the judge ruled she's free, her children are free. But guess what? Oh, guess what? You've heard of double for your shame, haven't you? You've heard of God giving, giving divine compensation for all your tribulation. Have you heard that before? Biddy was so articulate, so good, such a wonderful woman that she was an expert. She was like a doctor. She did everything. So when she was a freed woman, people started calling on her, and guess what? She could get paid for it. And because she was learned to live on nothing, she saved up. She was a smart cookie. And she started saving her dollars and saving her money and saving and saving. And before you know it, she started buying real estate. And not only was she incredible in, in her, her abilities to be like a doctor, she was also a seamstress. Boy, she was everything. She was a woman, a midwife. And so she opened up a midwifing agency, and she delivered hundreds of babies, and now she's becoming a multimillionaire. Hello, somebody. Can I get a witness somewhere? And she was a founding member of the AME Church. She was a woman of God. And she bought originally that building. And it's because of that building coming from Biddy that God said, this is the place of my revival. Biddy, you're in heaven, but the real estate that you brought is so holy in my sight. It's so precious that I'm going to rain down revival that's going to change a century through your hardship, through your labor, through everything you've been through. Can I get a witness somewhere? Can somebody praise God? Now, I'm going to say something because I know I know we're we're all on the same page here, so I can talk I can talk straight, right? 
I can talk straight. Can I talk straight? Or do I have to, do I have to just kind of like uh, be real careful what I say? Because if I say something politically incorrect, some people are going to go crazy. Well, I know you're not because I know you're people of God. And you won't be offended by what I say because it's true. Sometimes the truth hurts. We don't want to admit it. But the church made a lot of mistakes. Some things that not ought not be in Pentecostal history. And we see that even at the tarrying altar, Bishop Seymour was not allowed to tarry at the altar with others. Do you know why God poured his power so strong upon Azusa? God is saying, heaven strongly objects to this behavior. Are you with me? If you are, say amen. So the secret of Azusa was the integration. The secret of Azusa was the oneness in the spirit. The secret of Azusa was no one ever spoke evil against anyone. It was a place of love. It was a place of respect. It was a place of Christian unity. Can I get a witness somewhere? Are you hearing me? This is why when we say we can't be scandalized by the supernatural because God's going to do whatever he wants to do with whomever he wants to do it. Hallelujah. Put your hands up right now and say, take the limits off of God. Come on, take the limits off of God. We need to come together in unity and oneness and in loving one another. Now, beloved saints, I want to just share with you. Hallelujah. We didn't get to the message. We just got to skip the message because I got to do the Holy Ghost message. So what I got prepared there, hallelujah, is right now, I don't want to say out the door because it's God's word, but I'm just saying it's not but for tonight. Hallelujah. Somebody ought to shout the victory. I want to say the miracles that happened at Azusa were, you've never, I've never heard of miracles like this. When a man came in with an industrial accident whose arm was removed, he came in to Azusa. They say within minutes, within minutes, the arm grew back. People watched sinews, the bones coming out, the skin going over. They watched the blood coming through the veins. I'm telling you, these are the kinds of miracles that happened at Azusa. Somebody ought to praise God. So we see that we cannot be scandalized by the supernatural. And beloved saints, I want you to see that, that the, fifth, the fifth building, the fifth attribute of revival is that we have to rebuild the ruins of revival and reawaken the promises and prophecies of God over our own life. God wants to reawaken the words that were given to you when you first came to the Lord. God wants to reawaken your fire. God wants to reawaken an experience that you had with the Lord that changed your life. And he wants you to live there. He doesn't want you to live in a memory. He wants you to live actively as if he touched you yesterday. Building, rebuilding the ruins of revival require 
that, that we go back to Bethel. You see, Genesis 35, verse 1. I'm not going to be long. Just this. It's all right. It's all right. Genesis 35, verse 1 says, And God said to Jacob, Arise and go to Bethel and dwell there, and make there an altar unto God that appeared to you when you fled from the face of your brother. Now, the Bible tells us that God that Jacob said to his household and all that were with him, put away your strange gods that are among you and be clean and change your garments. And let us arise and go up to Bethel, who to the God who answered me in the day in my distress, who was with me wherever I went. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 tells us, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where God talked to him, even a pillar of stone. And he poured drink, he put a drink offering thereon, and he poured oil thereon. Now I want you to understand what's happening here. God called him to go back to a place 20 years later. That place was a place that was consecrated and separated, but it was a place where God first put his hand on Jacob. It was a place where Jacob had an encounter with the power of God. It was a place where God spoke to him. It was a place God released destiny into his life. It was a place that heaven revealed to him. The land that you are lying on, I'm going to give to you and to your descendants. And in Genesis 28 is where Bethel began. Bethel was born out of the, one of the most sorrowful days of Jacob's life besides the loss of Rachel and the kidnapping of Joseph. He had to flee the land of Israel because his brother was going to murder him. He was isolated. He was alone. I'm going somewhere with this. Some of you have been isolated and alone, and you have gone through some things in your life, and that was the very thing that broke your heart is how God wooed you into his kingdom. The very need that you had is how God put his hand on you, and you became his. He used the suffering. He used the heartache. He used the hardship. He used the sorrow. He used what you went through. And he put his hand on you. And he separated you. And he called you to be his. That's what he did to Jacob. Jacob first encountered God in this place when he was fleeing from the face of his brother. And he was going into the unknown not knowing what his future was. And he lied down and God appeared to him and God gave him a word and God gave him promises and God put his hand on him and God stayed with him for 20 years where he was. And the Bible tells us that he could not break away from Laban until God said, Look at Genesis 31. I want you to go to Genesis 31 and look at verse 13, but first look at verse 11. Genesis 31, verse 11. Because when it was time for him to leave, guess what? I'm going somewhere with this. The Bible says the angel of God spoke to him in a dream saying, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here am I, verse 13. Verse 13 says, I am the God of Bethel. Where you anointed your pillar, where you vowed a vow to me, 
Get thee out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Now, just a moment before we go any further, I want you to know, God is saying, go, the only way you're going to get out of this land is that you got to go to Bethel first because something about Bethel is going to stir up the power of God that you received the day when the first time when I appeared to you in Bethel, I am the God of Bethel. Leave this land and go back to the place where I appeared to you, notice where God, what God says, where you anointed the pillar. And the Bible tells us Jacob returned. Genesis 35, he returned. And guess what? When he returned there, God repeated everything he told him in Genesis 28. Where are you going with this, Dr. Corral? God is saying tonight he is calling you back to your Bethel. God is calling you back to the place where he first put his hand on you. Now watch it just for a moment. Bethel represents awakening the prophecies that were once given to you in the past. God wants to wake up every word. God wants to wake up every calling. God wants to wake up every gift. You see, he had to anoint. The Bible says he poured oil when God spoke to him. And God said, remember the place you poured oil. And then when he went back again, he poured oil after God spoke to him. The pouring of oil represents that what God said 20 years ago, he can reawaken. Because after God said it again when he returned, he poured oil a third time. Do you understand? Let me tell you right now, there are many of us in this place. We're living off a of memory. We're not living off an experience. We are living in the memory of when God first called us. Or we're living in a memory of some prophecy that's dead, that's not active anymore. We're not living in the reality of that word that where God first called you and God first separated you and God first chose you. We got so involved in the worldly affairs of this world that we actually allowed that prophecy to remain dormant. It's not God's fault the prophecy is dormant. It's because we didn't live in the activation of it. We moved away from it. Revival requires that we live in the moments when God's power was so strong and we constrained those moments and we never let those moments go. Do you understand? Thank you for joining us today on Day of Destiny. We invite you to our website at mydayofdestiny.com where you can easily access other podcasts and obtain your copy of Dr. Corral's latest book, Secrets of the Anointing. Also, we want to take this moment to invite you to engage in extending your hand of kindness by planting your seed or offering for multitudes that include orphans, providing water wells, providing medical supplies, clinics, feeding programs, and many other services to the suffering church and through efforts of evangelism worldwide. Just go to our website and click the donate button or text to give. Text HESED, C-H-E-S-E-D, to 7797. That's HESED, C-H-E-S-E-D, to 7797. 
you are also invited to visit Dr. Michelle Corral Facebook or Instagram. We look forward to having you encounter the anointing with us on our next Day of Destiny podcast.